All right, welcome to the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we teach accredited business owners how to invest in alternative asset funds. And today, we have on the show one of my uh, friends from GoBundance, Matt Faircloth. Welcome to the show, Matt. Pascal, thank you. And it's an honor to be here. And I want to tell you that I, uh, that I think this show is awesome. Uh, and I think what you're doing is great, and it's very needed in the world. So, uh, I, I, so I think thank you for doing the show, and thank you for having me. Thanks, man. Hey, so to, to kind of like just dive right in, give us your story in relation to how you started investing in funds. Like how did you maybe earn your way up to investing in funds? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, okay. So I, got, so I quit my day job in 2005. I was a traveling sales rep that working for a company called Ingersoll Rand. They're a, you know, they, they make heavy machines that are, big and are loud, you know, and I used to sell them all over the place. So, uh, I, but I knew there was a better way and I read rich dad, poor dad, and that turned my eyes to the possibility of investing, uh, and making a living from investments versus making a living from trading hours for dollars. Um, and so rich dad, poor dad opened my eyes, but the, uh, his, another book that he wrote called cashflow quadrant completely you know, if that blew my, opened my eyes, that blew my head off. Right. So, um, cashflow quadrant taught me about the concept that I was working for Ingersoll Rand, uh, good job, but I was an E employee. Um, and I needed to transition over to being a B, which is, I am now I'm a business owner and my business is called the DeRosa group. Uh, but I'm also an I, which is what we're talking about today. A investor making my living off of investments. Uh, so in 2005, I quit my job to become a uh, real estate investor full-time. Now, at that time, I was buying the multifamilies or the small duplexes, triplexes, single family homes, whatever, and landlording themselves, collecting the rent myself and um, dealing with tenant issues and tenant you know, ins and outs and repairs, whatever, on my own. And that makes me either an S or a B from his language. And I eventually uh, built the business up and had some additional income come in. And by that point, once I built my business, I had kind of drank the Kool-Aid on real estate investing or real estate in general as a place to invest. And so where else am I going to put my extra cash, but back into real estate? So um, so that, that's been my, my path. It's, I, I am a firm believer, Pascal, in investing in things that you know. I don't own any Bitcoin because I don't know it. Not because I don't think it's not because I think it's bad, but because I don't understand it, you know, and I don't I don't I haven't researched. I don't know that space, but I know real estate really, really well because I'm an operator as well. I'm active in real estate. So most of my passive work is in real estate as well because it's something I know very, very well. Totally. So so when you when you were working through the DeRosa group, so you started putting money into your own deals, of course. then you at some point you started transitioning off. I imagine you kind of built an in-house team at some point, and then you're kind of removed, but you're not technically an LP, but you're experiencing what it's like to be more hands-off. Is that what I'm getting? Well, yeah, that's the first thing you do is as a business owner, um, you end up investing in people, right? And so my rate of return on investing in people that can do things that I used to do myself um, is astronomical because it frees me up to then put my time elsewhere. Cause that's why I think investing is not just about getting a return on your money. It's also, it also could be about get about producing time. That's an investment as well. Um, because it produces time that I can put towards other money-making activities or just put towards joy, 
put towards something else that I wanted, that I'd rather be doing. Um, and so I think that that's really the, the mindset that I've always had is how can I buy time? How can I buy cash flow or buy time with the money that I have? Um, and so uh, that was what investing in my business produced for me. So yeah, uh, I no longer show, show units to tenants because we just got more units than I could spend the time doing that on. Um, but we've got good people that do that. And I've also got good people that help us find deals and good people that underwrite those deals. And they do a lot of the things that I used to do that have enabled me to grow and focus my time on what I'm great at, which is raising capital because we also, I, I can speak on both sides of this conversation. I also aggregate money for real estate activities, but I also put my money into real estate activities too. Sometimes in my business and sometimes in other people's stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe give, give me an idea of how much total have you invested as an LP? And then maybe we can even talk about like an aggregate as a GP uh, and LP together. Sure. And then, yeah, let's start there. Yeah. Probably the well, I've put a lot of money out and gotten it back. But if you total it all up, I, well, I, yeah, about a half a million at least, if not more, um, that I've put into projects uh, and, and I've gotten it back or I still have it working right now. And so you're, you've talked about you invest on your own and you know real estate and you can continue building that up. Why, why invest in other funds as an LP when you can continue doing it yourself? Well, sometimes you don't have a deal, <laughs> you know, sometimes I, I wish Pascal that I always had an opportunity as an operator for to invest in. Uh, but as you know, uh, being an operator yourself, so sometimes there's just not a thing. And it's not that I, oh, it's not that, oh, the roaster group has this opportunity, but it's kind of crummy. So I don't put my money into that. You know, it's that we just don't have a deal. And sometimes I'll, you know, uh, produce a capital check for something that I have working and I want to redeploy it. And DeRosa Group just doesn't have a thing right now. I don't. I don't have a place to put the capital, so you can't force. You can't force it. It's the worst thing you could do as an investor is to force money into a thing. Um, and so I will put it somewhere else. So I've got several investments into other syndications. Um, you know that, that are uh, one's a, a, fl- a fund of a co- of a with a multifamily operator that's in a bunch of different uh, markets and stuff like that. Really, really well seasoned, big operator um in that and it's because i know multifamily i know this operator really really well um and so that just made sense uh, and we've also invested quite a bit in our own deals not just it, a because it's good to do that but also b because they're good opportunities and i want to i want to be on both sides i want to be a i want to make gp profits but also i want to make the the lps typically win before the gp does so yeah um, totally. it's actually better to be an lp than it is to be a gp in a lot of ways yeah, why do you say that? Because the GP gets paid last. I mean, when a if you're an LP looking at a deal, right? The arrangement should be where the GP likely gets some compensation for the sweat equity they've put in to the point of closing, right? So uh, some LPs that don't really understand things get squirrely about us as GPs charging a fee uh, for closing, like an acquisition fee, right? Well, at the end of the day, we don't, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a hobby. We do need to make some kind of money for what we do. And there's a lot of legwork that happens to get the deal to closing and not just get that deal, but like 
we maybe had to make offers or underwrite 70 or 80 deals before that one deal gets to the table. And so it's not just compensation for bringing that deal to closing. It's also compensation for every deal we said no to, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. to, to that. Yes. Um, and that, so the GP makes money there, but then the LP, the LPs get all the profit in their, in either their preferred returns or in their uh, in in their share of cash flow, it's it's a very LP slanted conversation as it should be in the beginning, uh, and so that's why the G, the LPs win because the LPs get first slice of cash flow from closing up until the deal is stabilized. Uh, once the deal gets stabilized, then the GP typically gets to eat you know a, a portion of what they've worked to generate, uh, but. I, from from closing on, the GP gets a asset management fee, which is good, but it's very hard to live on that. That's really just enough to keep your team fed and to keep your lights on. The the GP principals likely don't get very much of that at all of the asset management fee if you've got a good team. You know, totally. And um, there's tons of expenses that go into that, like yes. illegal and you know, overhead, internet. And, oh. Yeah, yeah, right, all that stuff, right? So yeah, that gets consumed pretty quick. So yeah. then the GP then gets a, a big hit when the property sells or refinances or whatever, yet again, as they should, because that's the promised land. You know, I got the deal to where it should go, but, you know, a good GP might invest two to three years into the project to get the deal to that, to that slam dunk, to that level of profitability. And then they get a big check. But guess what? They earned every, every penny of it to get the deal to that point. And that's a good win-win arrangement. If you're an LP looking at a deal, that's kind of what you want to see is a GP getting an okay check in the beginning, but then some breath holding until they get a, a nice check again. Yeah. And what, what kinds of deals are you getting into? Is it all, is it all multifamily? Is it span a couple things? And then when, when you're investing, like, what is your objective? Are you like a, a cash flow or are you equity growth or a mixture of both? And like, how do you decide? Yeah. I mean, equity growth's good. Equity growth's kind of getting put up on a pedestal the last five years. Because um, if you look at a lot of investments, it's been, you know, you put in a dollar, you pull out $4 in, in, a, in a year or two. It's like a, like a magic trick, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's ta-da, right. Um, but it's because appreciation is, we're, we all, we're all riding a wave that we didn't create, but everybody's looking like a genius right now, pounding their chest saying, look what I've done. I've made my investors all this money. Um, and so, that, and that's through appreciation or, or, or through, you know, equity growth, right? Um, but I am a student of Kiyosaki and he's always been talking about cash flow. He's always talked about cash flow. He's rarely talked about appreciation and riding waves and that kind of stuff. That's just participating in the market, which I can't really control, you know? Um, so I am far and away, Pascal, I'm a cash flow investor. Um, and to me, appreciation's a nice icing, you know, maybe a little cherry up, up, up on the top, but the ice cream, uh, the part you should be really aiming for is the uh, is the cash flow and the investment. I like that. Okay, so so when you're investing in for cash flow, yeah. and the types of investments that you're making are they cash flowing on day one? Are they cash flowing six months from now? You know, is it do you have to wait two years until something stabilizes? Uh, and then <laughs> and then yeah, and what asset classes? Sometimes. So I I am not a tax 
uh, sensitive investor because of my, you know, I hate the, I, you know, I'm going to use a three letter word because of my job, um, as a operator, uh, I get a lot of write-offs because of the, the cost segs and, and negative K ones I get to participate in. So because of that, I'm not as sensitive towards investing in things that are tax income tax leveraged. The doctor or physician or lawyer that's listening to this, this right now, that's making, you know, mid six figures is certainly going to be very, very tax sensitive. And so I can't speak to that. One of your other guests will have to talk about that. Um, because I invest for cash flow because I don't care as much about where the taxes come from. I do invest in syndications because I believe in them, but I also invest in things that are not tax, that are not tax leveraged, not tax benefits, such as hard money loans. And so I've got probably 50% of my investment of my portfolio that I've got right now in passive is in hard money loans. Um, because they cash flow day one, you know, uh, they cash flow day one and they're collateralized. Uh, so there I'm protected, arguably a little bit better than a syndication would be, uh, although I've got upside equity and that's, that's the, that's what you trade is a hard money loan. Somebody could smack out of the park and make like hundreds of thousands of dollars on the fix and flip or on the project that you're invested in. And you get none of that. Like they get all that. It's all theirs. Uh, so there's no upset participation, which stinks on harmony loans, but they're making monthly payments, you know, at favorable rates could be even be double digit rates. Uh, and you're collateralized with some sort of a, you know, uh, lean on the property, personal guarantee, some means to guarantee that you're gonna get your money back. So hard money loans are probably my favorite right now, Pascal on like right there with syndications only because syndications, uh, you know, are a good way to ride upside. But if, with, with, if you take tax off the table, the hard money loans, I think, are a, a great, great investment. So, uh, and, and like when, when you're thinking about these deals, is it like, hey, I have 50 or 100K that's come in and I'm now trying to figure out what to do with it. And it's like, cool, you know, I just got an email about this opportunity. Let me see if this is good or, you know, how are you finding your deals? And yeah, tell me about that. Process. I tended like, I like to keep my, uh, finger on the pulse with, it was funny. It's, it's so like serendipity, but like, uh, truth be told, like, you know, uh, open, open, uh, open ideas here, um, or open kimono, whatever you want to say. I was late for this call with you because I was talking to one of my, uh, borrowers. Uh, it's, it's just truth. I was talking to one of my guys who's got a project in, in, um, down in Florida and uh, just just staying in touch with where the project is, how it's going, whatever. So I tend to talk to my operators pretty quickly. And the guy in Florida I just talked to gave me the good news that the fix and flip that I invested in into a hard money loan just went under contract for sale, right? So now I know, Pascal, that the I gave him 80K. So the 80K I gave him is about to come back. Right. So, but it's going to, he's under contract, right? So it's probably 45 days out. So now is when I'm going to start shopping around and where I'm going to put that 80K. I'm starting that conversation now on, on where that goes. Cause I don't like the worst thing you could have right now is money sitting on the shelf that could be deployed. That's beyond what your security blanket money is. You know, we should all have some security blanket money of just cash just sitting on the shelf. You like just in case, you know, you know what hits the fan kind of money. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, if you got money that's just sitting, it's dead. It's not growing your net worth. And so uh, that 80K, I am now, now that I know it's coming back, the rest of my week 
today's Thursday. So I'll probably be making calls later on today and tomorrow uh, to operators that I trust to ask what they're up to. I'm on a lot of people's email blasts and that kind of stuff. So if I see a new deal announcement come up, I'll reach out to that operator direct and find out when they need the capital that's for um, the syndication. For that money, the other thing I'd like to do that is coming out of a hard money loan. So I will likely want to deploy it back into a hard money loan because I don't want to change my diversification. You know, So if a syndication comes back, like we've got a syndication that we are, are in on that's refinancing in the next couple of months. So we'll be getting about 40% of my capital back on that. I'm going to look for another syndication to put that money into, right? Because I like my I like my my blend right now. So it's important to to trade like for like if it comes back, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and you've talked you have like this set of operators that you you now have that you trust like how do you think about this process of figuring out which operators you want to work with and how do you figure out like do i want to be in a fund that's like they buy multiple assets under one or yeah. figure out a syndication depends on the operator it goes all goes back to the operator the fund i mean like there's a lot of brand new operators that are just getting going that are starting funds um and i don't uh, I, I don't think that that's the right investment for me anyway. The funds that I'm in on, I'm only in, in one multifamily fund. Um, and that's with an operator that's that you know, that his company owns like, you know, in, in the five figures of multifamily assets and they've been around for a while. So that's one that I'm open to, uh, not going to invest in a fund for somebody who doesn't have that level of diversification, that level of, um, Deal flow. Operating experience. Yeah, that deal flow and everything like that. Because there's a lot that goes into a fund, right? I mean, like for if it's a multifamily fund, you've got to show that they know how to take a deal from beginning, middle to an end on a regular basis. And they didn't just get lucky a couple of times that they know how to you know, cycle it through. I like folk, I like, uh, syndicators that are vertically integrated, meaning like they do acquisitions in house, their capital raising in house. Um, and that I personally would not invest in a fund that doesn't have operations in house too. There's a lot of funds out there that do it. I'm not bad mouthing those that are like that. That's just not my thing. I want to invest with somebody who's got like control from cradle to cradle, cradle to grave. You know, because they can better, you know, keep track of expenses and make cuts where they need to or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't just underwrite a deal a certain way to make it look good to me. They actually are beholden to me throughout the life and they can. And if the deal starts to get squirrely and they know that, it, that it's it's off the business plan, they can do what it needs to what needs to happen to bring it back on. If it is a fund manager that invested in somebody else's deal, that fund manager has less control if things start to get squirrely with the investment. They just do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's just my point. Yeah. Again, this is this is like operator Matt talking now. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, look, yeah. it's helpful, right? Because like yeah. there there are a ton of different people that come from different backgrounds. It's like I either came from real estate and I'm looking to invest in other real estate deals. It might be, hey, I'm you know, I have a business owner that's a service business or I'm a doctor or whatever, and I'm I don't have expertise in these asset classes. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to find the expert. What I'd love to do is dive into, let's, let's take a step back down memory lane and, and talk about maybe your first fund that you invested into as an LP. So you've, you've done a couple deals on your own. What led you to get there and, um, how did that unfold? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, my first fund that I got into is just the one, 
um, was one that I, it was not my first investment. Or, sy- or syndication, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, my, well, the first investment I ever made uh, as an LP in general was a hard money loan. Um, and I think that hard money loans, it's, it's hard to beat. Pascal, you know, um, they, in, with regards to getting started, because it's, you're just, uh, you know, you got collateral, you can look and see the asset. This, the hard money loan that we did was like right around the corner from where my wife and I lived. So it was with a local flipper that was like a like air quote buddy of mine, um, to go see where it was and go touch it and look and see. I was one of three, uh, hard money lenders on that deal. Um, so I, I knew I was not, I, I was part of a pool of investors like, you know, and he, you know, separated us. So it was like lean one, lean two, lean three, um, on, on the property, but it was a good way. And I think I put in 25 K. So I, all the things I like about hard money, and I wasn't sure if I was accredited at the time, um, in that deal because, and you don't have to be for a hard money loan. That's one of those things that it's a misconception to do a hard money loan. You don't have to be accredited. And it was a good way to put some extra cash we had to work. I mean, it's not life-changing money. I think we made like 10% on our money at, at 25K. Yeah, but you got to so, start somewhere. Yeah, but you build the snowball, right? And uh, so uh, I think hard money loans are a great place to start. Um, and yeah. A lot, and if you, if you hang out around RIAs and you know people that are operators and stuff like that, uh, operators always RIAs. need. Yeah. Oh, real estate clubs, real estate investment associations. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay, so so you you started in hard money loans. Uh, you you basically had someone that you know that was doing this, uh, and then they approached you and were like, you know, hey, I've got this deal. Like, do you want to participate? And then you were like, okay, I kind of know the guy. I can I can touch and see the soil, you know. And and that felt that like one. Good- it was just gut. Like I trusted him. I knew he was going to do right by me. Uh, I, I knew that uh, I, I knew their track record and that. So it was really just about like trusting the person. Now it's that's part of it now, but we're a little more seasoned in that. So the investment is is a whole different. Like there's a lot more that goes into evaluating our hard money loan um, on a project. T- versus t- tell like, me about that. Like that, let's like like yeah. cool. You've had your first. You, you did yeah. your first investment, and then you are where you are today. So like, what were the learnings? What were mistakes yeah. along the way? Yeah. yeah. Well, that deal. Uh, we got in not not needing monthly payments, uh, or not 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 be like just do like okay, it's fine. Pay me a monthly payment towards the end. I like to get monthly payments now. Um, I mean, I wrote a book on this thing of raising private capital. Uh, the bigger and we'll link that. Published. Yeah, right, right. No, that's fine. And um, what I'm saying is, uh, on the operator side, you want to try and negotiate no monthly payments because it helps cash flow. I talk about that in the book. But as a LP. Uh, you do want monthly payments because it helps your personal cash flow. Um, it, it helps, you know, and in some ways it actually helps you gauge the deal health, you know, um, that you know that they, they, they got a pulse and it's like your pulse of the deal is, is that check, right? If someone reduces your yeah. risk of the investment. Yeah. It, it can't get it. It can't go running away from you. Um, because they, they, they just owe you the principal and it's not like principal and interest piling up and up and up and up and up. Right. Um, and so, uh, I like monthly payments. I also like operators that that they're only in one type of thing, right? So the in first investment we did, it was like they're they were on two or three fix and flips, and they had a couple of rentals, and they also were a wholesaler, right? But they were a buddy of ours, and we liked them, and they knew what they were, we knew what they were capable of. It was also close to where we lived, and the loan to value was favorable. It was like below, it was like sixty five percent LTV all in when you add it all up. So. All those things 
sound good. Now, uh, I like investing with small to mid-sized businesses that like the investment, the guy I was talking to that I was late for this call on, he's got 17 fix and flips going on right now, right? I mean, he's got a, he's got three crews of con of construction teams that work for him. You know, he's not hiring anybody. He doesn't pick up a paintbrush anymore. Um, he's got, he's only in two markets. He, he's in uh, North Jersey and he's in Sarasota, Florida. That's it. You know, and it just, he's a legit business. He's been around for a while and he's sold probably over a hundred homes in his career. And he either sells them he refinances his refinances and rents them out with his own property man and with his own property management company or he Airbnbs them. That's what they do in Sarasota, Florida is Airbnb. So, um, they've got a good business plan. They got a website, they got a team, the whole thing. So that's a good bet for me, uh, because they've, they, they're a seasoned, well-run outfit. So, uh, and I like him. And all my other yeah. factors are there too. I still like him. I still think he's a good company. I, I I still believe in what he's doing and he's, you know, proven track record and everything else. So, yeah, I mean, I follow a similar sentiment to you. I think when I first started, yeah, I gave hard money loans to this person. And, but w what I'm realizing now, and especially now, I think you're seeing it with the tide going out with the economy and what's happening is like, okay, the people that are doing deals and they do a bunch of other things. Oh, I have this, you know, short-term rental, you know, portfolio and I do these house hackings and I like run this multifamily and it's like unless you have a team underneath running all of those things, like there's no way that that operator is going to like I want someone if I'm going to give them my money for them to be 100% focused on delivering returns yeah. and not being distracted. Pascal, I would never, and with the tide going out, as you said, we great way to look at it, right? I, there's no way I would invest with a single operator right now, you know, um, with meaning like, a, like somebody running this thing, you know, out of their guest bedroom. Uh, and, and they're the only, and, and there, there, there is a time for that. And I was that person. That's why I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm being a terrible, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, guest but you right learn. now. You know? What's that? You, you we, learn. We, yeah, yeah, we learn. Well, that single operator, they're not going to starve to death. They have other places they should go to get capital um, and that. So I went to like immediate family when I was a single operator, which was my wife and I. And I didn't take it, you know, to the to, you know, next level until my wife and I had proven a track record with our own money and with immediate family's money um, and, and that. So that's that, that's that's where single operators should go. But as the tide continues to go out. The single operator that you may invest with may choose, you know what, man, this thing's too hard. I'm not doing this. I, I'm I'm out. I'm I'm gonna pull up anchor and you know, uh go 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 become a you know car salesman or something like that. You know? Um, they may decide to get out of the business, they may decide they may decide to just pivot or whatever it is. And a business has uh, a, a deeper pockets, first of all, and they've also got deeper a deeper bench that can help you out. So if just somebody has a bad day, your investment's not going to languish, right? So it's important to invest with seasoned companies at this point in the in the market cycle. Yeah, have you had have you had investments where you know something's gone awry and like what have you learned from it? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So I, I've had hard money loans go, um, hard money loans get to a point where I had to, 
make tough, like, you know, tough phone calls. Um, I've had to do workouts, you know, uh, with folks and everything like that, where it's like, Hey, okay, you owe me 50 K. Uh, and I get, you can't get that to me right now, but where can, how can we get that back? Uh, you know, what's that going to look like? We move the collat, you know, we've had to have the difficult conversation. And if you don't keep your finger on the pulse and do what I just did, talking to my heart money, let my borrowers about once a month or so, you are going, you may end up getting that surprise about them calling you or likely not calling you. Like you letting it go like six months and reaching out saying like, Hey man, what that 50 K I gave you, is that still alive? Oh yeah, man. Guess what? You know what? That deal didn't go so well, you know? Um, so I don't want to have that surprise. I like to stay in the loop on it and everything. And so, yeah, we've had stuff. I've never ended up in court over these kinds of things, but I've, I've had to negotiate, uh, workouts with people, uh, and it stinks, but it is what it is. It's just part of the business. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine like individual loans scare me a little bit. Like I I've done hard money loans before. Um, but, uh, like why, why like a hard money loan directly versus like a debt fund? It's not, I mean, debt funds are great. We're thinking, you know, we're thinking, I, I like hard money so much. My, th- my, my company is thinking about launching a debt fund. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that, um, understand that what you are participating in. I think that the LP would need, I like, I personally would not invest in a debt fund. And the only reason for that is because I'm, I'm, I'm also by trade an active operator too. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I got the time I can put in to having those conversations with my borrowers. Where are you at? Where's this? Where's that? If I had a demanding day job or something like that, I would certainly uh, be investing in a debt fund and understand you're going to get diluted. Right. Like, because you got somebody like me that's standing between you and where the money's going and making underwriting decisions and putting your money to work and acting as your custodian. Right. So uh, if I ha- if I did not have time, I would invest in a debt fund, but because I do, and because this is what I do, totally, uh, yeah, I'm I'm willing to make the full burden profit by putting my money to work. And that's like if you're going to give up some of your time, if you're the cardiologist that doesn't that doesn't have the time to go find investments and chase uh, borrowers around, then you're going to give up a little bit of your profit, and that's okay in exchange for your time. You know, you just make them make a mailbox money legit, you know, and hard money loans are not mailbox money all the way. It does take time to maintain them uh, properly anyway. So so someone is like investing or looking to invest in one of their first deals. What what advice or what steps do you have that you would recommend? Like pretend I, I haven't invested in a deal or for whoever's yeah. listening. It's like, yeah, you know. First and that fair club. Yeah. Yeah. I, here's what I strongly suggest. And I tell this to those that invest with my company as well. Um, the returns on the deal should be your like third thought, you know, because if you're investing in a deal that's, that's quoted to produce like 18, 19, 20% IRR, it, it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't matter. This does, that's just smoke and mirror numbers on a piece of paper, on a piece of paper, right? If it is your first or second or third investment, you should be investing with an operator that's got, it's, you know, that, that aligns with your core values in a market that you know, like if you've never even heard of the market they're investing in, then you might not want to, you know, to do You might want to research the market first. Like if they're telling you they're going to invest in Dallas or like we do, we invest in a couple cities in North Carolina and in Kentucky, right? So if you are familiar with those markets or if you're willing to research the markets to make sure the markets, the market tea leaves 
make sense to you as a good place? Like, should I invest in Detroit? I don't know. Let's Google it. Let's find out. Let's talk to some friends I know that live there or whatever, you know? Um, and to be straight, Pascal, if you really start looking behind the behind the numbers, you'll start to see things that maybe look too good to be true. And if things look, look could look too good to be true, and they probably are, and like investments that you make, especially in the very beginning, should not be speculative at all. And, and it certainly should not be something where the stars have to align, meaning like rates have to stay down or cap rates have to stay down or whatever it is for the investment to be profitable. Uh, so I would like run a worst case scenario test on the deal. And it's like, well, you know, if the market completely goes terrible and you know, and the, you know, what hits the fan, will I at least get my money back? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and that, so these are the kind of questions you should be asking. Certainly not what the operators telling you the rate of return is going to be, because I know as an operator myself that these are all our best ideas on what we think the deal is going to do. You know, we can't predict the future, you know? So we're going to do our best. And the, and the right operator you pick is going to do their best for your for your to make to get you the best return they can, and that's who you want to bet on is the operator that's been around for a while that's going to do whatever it takes uh, alongside you. Maybe not the deal that looks the best on paper. Yeah, yeah. And then, do you have a process for how you evaluate operators, or you know, before you mentioned a gut feeling? Um, are, are all the operators you invest in like that? Do you spend X number of hours with each of them? Do you, you know, I like, I like to talk to at least one other person that has, I mean, I, the only operators I've invested in are operators that my friends have money with first. Right. So, uh, if I hear that, you know, you and I are both in go abundance, right? It's a lot of folks invest passively in go abundance and that. So I tend to follow people that are smarter than me. I've got several hard money loans with alongside other friends of mine in go abundance. Like, oh, they're getting in. Okay. I'll do that too. Or they're investing passively with that person. I'll do that too. Um, and these are people I respect that I know they do a lot of due diligence and I know that they're seasoned savvy investors and that. So I tend to follow people I respect that are maybe a few steps down the road from me in the I quadrant world. And, and that, so that's, that's another thing that I do when it comes to vetting. And then I also talk to, I try and talk to the operator or at least somebody on their team to have a phone call with them, you know, ask them questions about what their long-term game plan is, what their long-term goals are, that kind of thing. What else they got going on? That's not like, okay, we're buying this multifamily asset. What else is your company doing? Well, we're doing some fix and flips, we're doing some hard money loans, we're doing some wholesales, we're doing some of this, some of that, some of this, some of that. No, you're a dabbler. I'm not investing with a dabbler. You know, like uh, I want somebody who's built a business and a brand around that thing that I'm investing in. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, also another opportunity to have you on the show as a GP so we can talk about the DeRosa group. But because I have you on, let's like, what are maybe some things now that you've spanned both sides of the spectrum being both a GP and an LP, what are maybe some things that as an LP don't make sense to me or, you know, like, or, you know, I could see when you're, you talk to LPs, right. Cause you, yeah, you raise your own time. funds too. It's like, I do. you know, some of them are like, Oh, your fees are too high or you're, or, you know, they, they have some sort of objection. I can explain and, that, you know, I'm like, well, so-and-so doesn't only take this kind of fee. Well, like, yeah, well, let's, let's go into his business structure and I'll show you where they actually are taking the fee and not telling you about it. At least I'm disclosing it to you, you know, um, cause we have people question our acquisition fees when we bought, when we take down a deal, they're like, well, you guys are taking 2%. So-and-so is only taking one. Like, okay, 
He's also taking, they or she or them are also taking a sponsorship fee and a placement fee and a this fee and a that fee. And guess what? It actually magically adds up to 2% as well, huh? How about that? But at least I'm telling you straight up. I don't take any other fees except for what I tell you about, right? So the fee thing doesn't bother me. What makes me scratch my head and go, huh, that a lot of LPs come at me uh, at is um, value add syndications that magic fairy dust cash flow the first day that you buy them, you know, that, that, uh, that are producing a pref or that are able to meet full burden investor returns like right after closing. And let's discuss that for a second, you know? Yeah. Let's break that down. Wait, value add means you have a property and you're renovating it to improve it. So renovating takes- I'm buying it for X. I'm going to do something to it and it's going to be worth Y when I'm done doing what I do. Right. You know? Um, and likely, I mean, you know, unless you just found the deal that nobody else was knowing about, uh, likely the deal is not going to cash flow very well the first day you buy it. Just real estate just does not, you know, it hasn't cash flowed like that in years. You got to make a good deal. You got to buy a good, buy a deal that's underperforming and make it perform well. And in that operation of making it perform well, that is where you produce cash flow, but it's not the first day you buy it, you know? And that's what's beautiful about multifamily is because you can buy it for X and it could be worth like 2X within a reasonable period of time through work, right? Um, but it rarely produces a profitable a profit in the first year. And what I've seen LPs compare us to as well, you know, Johnny McDonald's down the street is doing a deal and he's offering me my pref of 6% or 7%, whatever it is. The first, you know, first month they're paying out the pref. Like, where do you think that money's coming from, man? You know, it's not coming from the deal. I'll tell you that. It's because they raised it and and, they, and now they're just giving you like, that's your money back, you know? Yeah. Should, and now you're getting taxed just, on that. Right. They should be just sending you back a check with your name, like a return check with your name on it. That's your money, you know? Um, it's like a magic trick. Uh, so you, you LPs don't realize that. LPs look at a check in the mail uh, as a sign of health on a syndication. A private loan, it is a sign of health. But on a syndication, yeah, I've seen syndicators and operators keep their investors in the dark and just pay them a pref and say, okay, investor, you're getting a monthly check. That must mean that you're healthy. You know, that must mean we're doing well is you're getting your monthly distribution or your quarter distribution or whatever. And for us as a GP, we don't do that. Uh, we pay uh, either a position, a, a portion of cash flow with no pref, or if the pref can't, if the deal itself can't afford to pay the pref that month, we will accrue it all day long, you know, and we'll hold on and we'll, it'll owe the pref the next quarter or two quarters or whatever, when it can, you know, cause we are about the, we're keeping the deal healthy and not just throwing an investor a check on a, on a quarterly basis. Uh, and that's probably the biggest frustration I have, Pascal, is that there's other operators out there that are just, you know, paying no matter what, whether they really can or not, they're just paying investors to keep the investors quiet. That's fascinating i haven't come that's across my, that's that yet, my thoughts that's, about that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah lots of yeah i imagine as an operator it's really difficult to set yeah. yourself apart to lps when you have yeah with the with the markets being so high recently and now coming down we're seeing that change a little bit but yeah yeah 
A lot of operators have had to stop prefs, you know, uh, that used to pay like clockwork have had to stop that because of things like rates rising and rate cap, uh, the cost of rate caps and rate cap escrows. And I don't have to get into all that, but if we can, if you want, um, but just by the economy changing, let's say, um, they are not able to, or have decided to cease paying their investors. And a lot of investors are starting to scratch their head and be like, well, you paid the pref the whole time. You know, wonder why, what happened? Well, yeah, that's because we ran out of money because <laughs> we can't do it anymore. You know? So I, uh, I, I think it's, you know, you got to look beyond the pref as investors and start looking at profit and loss statements and looking, um, you know, looking at more about the deal They you know, look, know how to read a P and L that's Kiyosaki 101. Uh, as an LP investor, you need to be qualified to know how to read a P&L, know how to read a balance sheet, and make sure that your operator is sending those to you <laughs> yeah. so that you can read them. And then, and then make sure they make sense when you get them. Yeah. Man, Matt, this was awesome. I uh, yeah. I appreciate I appreciate this. This was amazing. Uh, learned a ton. And man, things, things to look out for as an LP. Uh, and uh, where, where can people find you, Matt? Sure. Uh, real easy, derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A, derosagroup.com. Uh, they can hear all kinds of stuff that we offer from a passive standpoint. Um, and, uh, and then that, that's, and they can, you know, contact me and my team there as well. If you guys want to pick my brain a little bit further about, you know, my thoughts on the world and although my crystal ball is broken, Pascal, uh, you know, who knows, man, who knows, but, uh, I, I do have thoughts on where I think things are going and, and, uh, we, we try and stay a bit ahead of that as operators and as passives too. Yeah, and and you have an email list and podcasts as well. Yeah, I do have a podcast, but they uh, I tried that, but it didn't work out. That's, that's all. I commend you for doing this, man. That's a lot of work running a podcast. Uh, I'm just I just take the lazy road and go on good friends podcasts like yours uh, as as a guest to, uh, to 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 do that. But I don't have a show right now. But they can certainly join our email list at at derosagroup.com. Cool. Well, thank you again, Matt, and uh, thank right you everyone well. for joining us. Thank you. <laughs>